So John chapter 14, verses 12 to 14. I will read these out. This is the word of God. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is the word of God. Today, uh, we're going to look at this beautiful theme of greater works. It's quite, quite an extraordinary theme that Jesus is talking about here where he says, greater works. Jesus has been doing the works of the Father. And then he says, you, my followers, will do greater works than these. And so the way we're going to look at this is by looking at what these works are. What are these works that Jesus talks about? Why are they greater? And then how they apply to every aspect of our lives. So we're going to go a bit deeper into the works and then wider into looking at the application of these works into every aspect of our lives, from motherhood and fatherhood to being good workers, to being good citizens. Uh, We know that the redemption that is found in Jesus Christ transforms every aspect of our lives. There is nothing outside of the scope that can be redeemed and be used to the glory of God. In our context, Jesus has been talking about this perfect unity. If you remember through John 14, there's these themes of this perfect unity that the Father has with the Son. Jesus is saying things like we just saw last week in verses 10 and 11. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. There's such unity within the Godhead. So the words that Jesus says are the very words of God. The works that Jesus does are the very works of God. There are things that only God would be doing and is able to do. And this is actually what Jesus points to to authenticate his ministry. The very fact that he is doing these things, he's speaking these things with such authority. And it's to say, this is because I am God in the flesh. No one other than God in the flesh could be doing these things. So in verse 11, he gives this plea almost to believe on account of the works, which is an urgent call to see that what he is doing is God in the flesh, revealing that he is God in the flesh, showing that God's salvation is here, showing that the Messiah has come. So the works that Jesus does show that he is God in the flesh. Now, Here's the thing. It's one thing for Jesus as the Son of God to be doing the works of God. It's quite another for man to do the works of God. In the same way, almost, that's what Jesus is saying here. Notice in verse 12, he says, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. These same works that I've been doing, the one believing in me is going to do these works. We saw from the end of verse 10 that the works Jesus has been doing are the works that the Father is doing in the Son. And now Jesus, as the Son, is saying, now you who believe in me are going to do these same works that the Father has been doing through me. So you who have come to me, you have come in me, and therefore the Father is going to continue doing these works through you. There is a unity in the works that Jesus did And that we go on to do because it is the same God working out the same plan of redemption through us. Now, we have to clarify how this unity works in the works that we do. 
We've got to qualify this because we cannot raise people from the dead. We cannot save people. There are obviously things that we cannot do that Jesus was very clearly doing. So what are the works that Christ refers to here? What are these works? And the answer, I believe, is more to do with the purpose of the works rather than the works themselves. So the answer is in the purpose of the works rather than the works themselves. In, in John chapter 5, if you recall John chapter 5, Jesus is speaking to these people who are questioning, or questioning his authority, questioning why he can say the things that he says and why he can do the things that he does. And Jesus speaks then of how John the Baptist testified about him, but then he goes on to say that the works that he is doing that the Father has given him to accomplish the very works that I am doing, Jesus says, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. That's the purpose of the works. The works that Jesus is doing is to show that he is heaven sent, is to show that he is God in the flesh, is to show that God's salvation is here. So he doesn't feed 5,000 people with five loaves and a few fish to show that he's just some master chef extraordinaire. No, he shows that. He does that work to show that he is the living bread that came down from heaven that is the only one who is going to sustain us and nourish us. In John's gospel, John does not record Jesus healing every blind person. He records Jesus healing one blind person at a particular time to demonstrate both the blindness of the religious leaders and also to demonstrate that it is only in Jesus Christ that we receive our sight. The things that he does are pointing to the fact that God's salvation is here. They're not pointing to themselves. They're pointing outside of themselves to the reality that Jesus is God in the flesh. Now, if this is the purpose of the works of Christ, then our purpose is intimately tied to this. The, the, the purpose of our lives as those who have come to Jesus Christ is ultimately to glorify God and point to Jesus Christ, who is the saviour of the world. Everything we do is about pointing to that reality. Now, in verse 12, Jesus not only says that we will do these works, but he astoundingly says, greater works will you do. You'll do even greater works than these because I am going to the Father. Now, how is it that we will do greater works than Christ himself? How can you top the works that Christ has done? It's not saying that we will necessarily perform greater miracles than Christ. Rather, the greatness is found in the way in which these works continue. So let me highlight three aspects that make the works which God does through us greater. Three ways in which the works that we do become comparatively greater. The first reason that these works we do are considered greater are because of the extent of salvation. So remember the works that Jesus does. They are to point to the reality that God's salvation is here. Now, as Jesus did these works in the area we, we now know as Israel, confined to an area about the size of the ACT, a little bit bigger than the ACT. Jesus did these works confined to one particular location. And yet the works that we do 
are greater because of the extent of salvation to which we see now. So the works that Jesus did were confined to this particular area, a little bit bigger than the area of ACT. Within just a century, the news of salvation and the evidence of salvation had spread to an area more than double the size of Australia. To this day, we see the salvation of Jesus Christ going to areas of this world that people at that point didn't even know existed. The extent of salvation, the extent of the news is what makes this greater. After three years of earthly ministry at the time of his death, Jesus had really but a handful of true followers, just a handful of true followers. And then within just a few weeks after his death and resurrection, you have Pentecost where 3,000 people are born again. 3,000 people, after three years of tireless ministry, and Jesus had but a handful of followers, and yet within just a few weeks, salvation had exploded. So the works that God continues to do through followers of Christ are greater because of the increasing measure of the new birth post the cross and the extent to which salvation has gone. That's the first aspect as to why it is greater. The second aspect of why the works that we do are considered greater is actually because of the weakness of the people involved. So the greater works that we do are not because we are great, but because great things are done through weak and inferior people. For example, if, if I lifted a 20 kilo Olympic bar above my head, that's not a big deal. And to people who think it's a big deal, trust me, it's not. Most of you adults could probably do it. It's not really a big thing to lift an Olympic bar above your head. If we brought Lewis up here, little one-year-old Lewis, and all of a sudden he does a snatch above his head, that is great. That is astounding. The only reason it's astounding is because of the comparative weakness of little Lewis. He's big for his age, but he's tiny compared to most people. It is considered great because of his inferiority and weakness compared to me. And in a similar way, the works that we do are considered great because of our own weakness and inferiority. Consider the way Paul talks in 2 Corinthians 4. This is where he he explains the apostles' ministry and he describes how they have this treasure in jars of clay. He describes how they are weak jars of clay. They're weak, fragile people. He says, we are afflicted, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. He's saying we're always being given over to death, but it's so that the life of Christ might be seen. So we are weak jars of clay to show that the surpassing power of God belongs to God and not to us. It is because of our own weakness that the greatness of God is seen. The apostles were merely men many of whom were actually uneducated. Some were just fishermen. They were of a lower class, and yet through these weak men, the power of God in the gospel was more fully displayed. Through through their own weakness, the power of God was more fully seen. God does not desire great and mighty people. He does not necessarily need great and mighty people. He desires weak and desperate followers who will depend wholly upon him so that he might do great things which are seen to be great because of our own weakness. It is because of the weakness of the individuals that the greatness of God is more clearly seen. Now, those are our first two aspects. The third aspect really brings these two together. The third aspect of why the works that we do are considered greater 
brings these two together. That is considering the extent of the salvation and then considering our own weakness. But what I want to do is show how it focuses in on the greatest work that we are involved in. So consider the third point. The works that we do are greater because of the ongoing miracle of regeneration. That is the new birth. When Jesus approaches Nicodemus and he says, unless you are born from above, unless you are born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. That is to say, unless a miracle happens, unless something supernatural happens, you don't know anything about the kingdom of God. The entrance into the kingdom of God is by being born from above. And this is the true miracle of our day. The true miracle of our day wouldn't be that God might part the seas again or even that he might cure cancer, even though God is totally able to do that. He is totally able to do whatever he pleases. But the greatest miracle of our day that we see is how cold, dead and rebellious hearts are transformed to be warm and alive to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is the greatest miracle of our day, how people who were once so hostile and so apathetic, so indifferent to the holy God of heaven and earth could all of a sudden have their hearts ravished by the glory of God and have an insatiable desire to please the living God. See, the, the devil can perform all sorts of Signs. Remember back to Exodus how Pharaoh's magicians were able to perform many of the signs which Moses and Aaron were there doing. The magicians also turned their staffs into snakes. They also turned the Nile into blood. They also brought frogs out of nowhere to infest the land. Paul talks about how the devil disguises himself as an angel of light. Signs and wonders are not reliable signs, but one thing that the devil absolutely cannot do and one thing that the world cannot manufacture is the new birth. That is the reality. He, nothing can transform people's hearts to go from utter selfishness to be captivated by Christ other than the Spirit of God. That is something solely reserved for the Spirit of God. And what a glorious thing that you and I are in some mysterious way involved in this as the Spirit, though no one knows where he goes, where he comes from, he is like the wind, but in some mysterious way we are involved in this as we see the Spirit of God bringing people to life. And this is the greatest miracle of our day. And these are great works that happen Today, we're witnessing in Nelson's baptism the reality that he has been born again, that something miraculous has happened. He has turned from death and turned to life. He has turned from darkness and turned to light. See, if someone professes to come to Christ because they were promised that they would be a millionaire if they did, then it's a natural thing for someone to want to come to Jesus. Nothing miraculous has to happen. But actually, the works that we see today are especially seen to be great when there is nothing about the message that seems appealing to our natural minds. They are seen to be great because there is nothing particularly appealing about the message of a crucified Messiah. So when someone has nothing to be gained by worldly standards, in fact, when actually it is going to cost them, it's going to cost them friends. It's going to cost them relationships. It may even cost them their job or even their life. And yet they still say, Christ is my Lord and I live to worship him. That is especially great. That is a wonderful sign of the great works that God continues to do to this day. 
Now, how does this all happen in weak and sinful followers of Jesus Christ like you and I? In weak people? Well, because the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells within us to continue this work of redemption, to sustain and preserve us, to help us bear witness to Jesus Christ, to help us carry on these works. This is what Jesus says. Greater works than these will you do because I am going to the Father. So Jesus goes to the Father to sit in glory at his right hand and together the Father and the Son then send the Holy Spirit to dwell within followers of Christ and continue this work of redemption. And this is why over the next few chapters he will go on to talk about the Holy Spirit dwelling within believers to comfort them, to preserve them, to sustain them, to guide them into all truth, to carry on these works that we have been prepared for since before the foundation of the world. The indwelling spirit empowers us to be faithful witnesses and live for the glory of God. Now, it is a glorious thing just simply to consider how we might be partakers of these works of God that continue to this day, particularly as we saw the miracle of regeneration, the new birth. It's a glorious thing to think how clumsy and weak people like you and I can somehow be used by the Holy Spirit in order to share the message of Christ with someone in order to pray with someone, in order to do something that would in some way bring them to a knowledge of the truth. But let's go a bit deeper and wider in our understanding of the works which we do that glorify God. So here's where I want to look at how this applies to every aspect of our lives. And let's just go a bit deeper to lay a solid foundation and then look at how this applies to all of the various aspects of our lives. If we look at the usage of works in John's Gospel in terms of the works that we are called to do. What we see is that works are largely centred upon faith and obedience and all for the glory of God. Or in simple terms, the works that we are called to do are of faithful obedience to the glory of God. That's to summarise what we are supposed to do. Faithful obedience to the glory of God. So, for example, John 3 verse 21 John says, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. He's saying, we come to the light so that it's clearly seen that everything we do is carried out by God and he's going to get the glory, right? So it's for the glory of God. John 6, verse 28 to 29, people come to Jesus after he feeds the multitudes and And they say, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What is Jesus' response? He says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So you want to know what work you need to do. It's to trust in me. That's your work. So we have for the glory of God and we have trust. And then notice John 8 verse 39. This is where Jesus calls the Jews uh, children of the devil rather than children of Abraham, for they are doing the works of the devil rather than the works of God. And he says to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. That's the sign. If you're truly children of the promise, then you would be doing the works that Abraham did. Well, what were the works that Abraham did? Genesis 26, 5. God himself, Yahweh, says Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge. Paul in Romans 4 talks about how it was Abraham's uh, faithful obedience 
It was his faith that actually credited righteousness to him, but his faith was seen in the fact that he offered up his son. So bring all that together. We see that the works that we are called to do are centered upon faithful obedience for the glory of God. If you have one statement to to keep at the forefront of your mind, your life is about faithful obedience to the glory of God. The works that we are called to do are centered upon this. And here is the mark of a true disciple of Jesus. A heart that has been so ravished by Christ that they now have a desire, a desire that you might say consumes them, to live a life of faithful obedience to the glory of God. And their great longing is to hear those words from the living God on that last and great day of redemption where the living God says, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done on your life of faithful obedience that was produced solely because of my grace working within you. Well done, good and faithful servant. This is what we long to hear. We long for that day of redemption. We long to enter into the joy of our master. And our great comfort is that the same spirit who brought us to life so that we might believe in Christ is the same spirit who will preserve us to that very day. The promise to the church is that he who began a great work in you will bring it to completion. Now, this is at the center of our works that we are called to do, a life of faithful obedience to the glory of God. But let's just go a bit wider and see how this applies to every aspect of our lives. And if you do have your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, because we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 2 to see how this applies. What does it look like to live in faithful obedience to God's standard in our context, in the slums of Tuggeranong, so to speak? What does it look like to live in faithful obedience to God's standard in our context? Well, Peter who heard these very words out of Jesus' mouth, he gives very helpful advice on this. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, Peter says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good works and glorify God on the day of visitation. Keep your conduct honorable, So that even though you're reviled, people are going to see your good works and they're going to glorify God on the day of visitation. So Peter speaks to followers of Jesus who are really on the margins of society, considering those whom Peter was talking to. These aren't wealthy people. These are people who are on the fringes of society. Following Jesus hasn't done them any favors. They have experienced great difficulty and he exhorts them to continue doing good works For the glory of God. And he goes on to say, notice in verse 15 of 1 Peter 2, this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, doing good there is is just one word that basically takes uh, the verb for to do and then the, the adjective good and just smashes it together, which a fair translation would be a do gooder which I don't know about you, but when I was younger, that seemed to be a negative thing that you would say to someone, you're just a do-gooder, but it's a wonderful thing. Christians should be do-gooders. That's what we're about. We are supposed to do good things. It's all for the glory of God. So this is what good works is centered on, this idea of being a do-gooder. The word encapsulates everything to do with what our lives ought to be about in terms of our good works. It talks about being good citizens, 
being good neighbours, being good brothers and sisters, good family members, good employees. This is what being a do-gooder is about. And Peter says, it is the will of God that while you are persecuted and while you are reviled, notice the expectation is there that you're going to be you're going to suffer some harm and some distress. While this is happening, you continue to do these good works. You continue to be a do-gooder so that you may silence foolish people. And then this sets the scene for Peter to go on to call followers of Jesus to be do-gooders in these various spheres of their life. So he, he goes on in chapter 2 to talk about how we must be subject to every human institution, subject to uh, the, um, the governments, subject to the emperor. Of course, this is only insofar as it doesn't compromise our allegiance to Christ. We obviously know wherever the government calls us to do something that would forsake God or that would compromise our allegiance, well, it's right for us to obey God rather than men. That's always the case. But insofar as the government does not call us to compromise our allegiance to Christ or compromise God's word, we are called to be good citizens living under the laws of the state. Peter goes on to then address slaves and he talks how slaves are supposed to be subject to their masters. And notice he actually says that we are to be subject, slaves should be subject to their masters, not only to the good and gentle, but even to the unjust. So he's saying to slaves, you who are under unjust masters, you don't have an out. No, you're still supposed to be a do-gooder. You're still supposed to be a good citizen, a good worker. That's what you're called to do. And he shows how they can do this by in 1 Peter 2 uh, verses 20, 21 and 22 by showing how Christ himself gave the ultimate example of faithful obedience amidst really difficult circumstances. So he says, Jesus Christ, when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he was threatened, he didn't threaten back, but he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. So Peter calls slaves to be do-gooders by living in submission in their place in society. Now, how, how much more ought we as employees to be obedient and respectful to our employers, regardless of how harsh your boss is? Peter goes on to address wives particularly those wives who do not have believing husbands. And he calls them to be subject to their own husbands and to have proper godly conduct, which is precious in God's eyes. It is valuable. It's expensive in, in, in God's eyes. There's a play on words there of him saying, don't adorn yourself with worldly attire that's expensive by worldly standards. What is expensive by God's standards is a gentle and quiet spirit. That is, that is precious and very valuable in God's eyes. And part of the point, is, as Peter addresses all of these spheres of life, is him saying, there is no circumstance you will ever be in where you cannot glorify God. There is no circumstance you will ever be in, regardless of how oppressed you are, regardless of how little resources you have, everything about your life can be for the glory of God. So how can we continue to do good works of faithful obedience such as these? while in very difficult circumstances. And we will have difficult circumstances. We'll have unbelieving spouses. We'll have harsh employees. We'll have annoying neighbours. We'll have 
times, possibly, where the very fact of us gathering together could cost us our jobs. We'll have difficult circumstances, and yet, in every single aspect, we can glorify the Lord. We can do these good works. And what we must remember is that it is our profound trust in Jesus Christ and the inheritance that we have stored up for us in heaven that will preserve us in the present. It is our hope in the future that preserves us in present difficulties. This is what Jesus has just done in John 14 where he talks to the disciples and says, don't be troubled. Don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place for you. You have an inheritance. You have a home. It's yours. Don't look to now, but look to what lies ahead. Look to the unseen and that will preserve you. And Peter surely, as he wrote this first letter, he must have had this ingrained within him because in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, he, he begins this all by saying, set your hope fully upon the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Is that where your hope lies? Has your hope been set fully upon the grace to be revealed to you at the coming of Jesus Christ? Or is your hope in having a good family now, having a good job, getting a good house? These are good things, but our hope is to be set fully upon the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is our future hope in Christ and his promises that preserves us in present difficulty. And if we think about how this applies to every aspect of our lives, how does the employee be bold in their workplace when they are demanded to wear the rainbow flag or else lose their job? How does that employee take a stance in a gracious way and say, this is simply too much. I, I cannot stand for what is contrary to God's standard. How do they do that and know that that's their livelihood gone? How do they do that? Well, they do so believing God's word that tells them that he's going to provide every one of their needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. How does, if we think about mums and dads, how does the mother continue to disciple her young children with edifying activities, with nurture and care, rather than just sticking them in front of a screen for eight hours of the day. And parents know the reality of this. It's a difficult thing. I mean, sometimes it's like it would be so wonderful if they could just sit there for an hour. But how does that, that mum continue to disciple her young children with edifying activities, engaging in good works that glorify God rather than just compromising and saying, just watch Bluey for eight hours. How, how do we do that? How does the father, how does the father gather the family around for a time under God's word, a time in prayer every evening, even though he knows, particularly his teenage children, just want to get out of there? How does he say, right, family, it's time. We're going to honor the Lord. We're going to come under God's word. and We're going to spend some time in prayer. How does that that dad do that? Well, the mum and the dad do so because they have a profound trust in God's word that tells them to diligently impress these things upon their children, to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. God's word that tells them that a house is to serve the Lord rather than materialistic or mindless screen time. They do this with a profound trust that what they do in faithful obedience to the glory of God is never going to be lost. Everything will be used. Even as we think about some of our, 
are single men, particularly in this church. How do single men stay faithful even though they long to find a wife? How do they stay faithful committing to a body of believers rather than fishing around every single week from church to church to try and find some wife? How do they stay faithful committing to gather with God's people? Well, they do so believing God's word that tells them to commit to a body of believers, but also to trust that he will provide. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and it's a good thing and it will come, Lord willing. Or if not, the Lord will provide you with sufficient grace to sustain you. Even thinking about teenagers, how do teenagers who would call themselves followers of Jesus Christ, how do teenagers stay faithful in their school when the reality is that it's not cool to be a follower of Jesus? It's very cool to say that you might be a follower of Jesus and to live like the rest of the world. Not so cool if you want to be a teenager that actually wants to pursue holiness. How do you stay faithful knowing that it's going to risk you losing friends? Well, you do so because you trust God's word, which tells you not to be a people pleaser, but to please God, not to please your friends, not to fit in with the crowd, but to be like Jesus Christ. These are all part of the good works that we are called to do, for they are lives of faithful obedience that glorify God. And it transforms every aspect of our life. There is nothing outside of our lives that God doesn't use for the glory of God. Of God, And so Jesus makes this clear in verse 13. Everything that we do in this path of faithful obedience is for the glory of God. When he says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now, this brings us to our final word of assurance that Jesus gives in verse 14. A wonderful word of comfort. He says, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. It's quite an astounding statement. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, we should avoid two extremes here. So we need to make sure we, we don't crash into the barriers. We need to clearly set up these pillars so that we stay away from the extremes and we understand this rightly. The first extreme that we should avoid is thinking that everything is in his name, uncritically assuming that everything is in his name. There are those who assume that this verse means that God must give them what they ask for. They come in an arrogant and prideful way and they are claiming things in the name of Jesus Christ. And it is an arrogant way, as James says in his letter, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. That's why you're not receiving. You're just approaching God like a cosmic genie hoping to rub his belly and get whatever you want out of him. That is not what a faithful follower of Jesus does. So an untransformed heart that comes to Christ simply when they need something materialistic, trying to claim his blessings, ought not to expect anything. To ask in his name is to ask for things that are consistent with God's glorious standard. D.A. Carson talks about this and he says, this is talking about prayers that are offered in thorough accord with all that his name stands for, with everything that Jesus stands for. That is what it's talking about. So we should avoid thinking that this is referring to everything that we desire. Now, the other barrier we should avoid is failing to believe that God answers bold prayers. Now, this is particularly a danger of those of us in the Reformed tradition, where we can overcorrect from some of the absurdities of prosperity teaching 
And we can overcorrect and then allow this to cause us to box God in to a God who no longer answers bold prayers. And so we say it, it wasn't according to his will and it's as though God doesn't will anything anymore. Nothing happens. And so we may be pushed to only pray safe prayers that are a safe bet, really. We have seen how God is glorified in doing glorious works through weak jars of clay. And God continues to do, as he promises in Ephesians 3.20, far more abundantly than all we could ask or imagine. God is... Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. God is able to do miraculous things. He is able to do wonders. It's his prerogative to do that. So the sign of a mature Christian isn't to be so safe with prayers that we're praying for things that are only sure things and we're boxing God into our box of reformed comfortability the sign of a mature christian rather is to pray bold prayers because we believe in a huge god who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or imagine and yet everything is centered upon the glory of god everything is centered upon his glory we are not approaching him for materialistic things that are simply for our glory whereas even the things that we are asking for our needs like a house or like a job, they are for the glory of God. We're ultimately praying that he would be glorified and he will be glorified whether we have a house or not. He will provide for us in some way. But we bring these prayers before him. We bring bold prayers before him that are centered upon the glory of God. And we then humbly accept whatever response the Lord may give. Whatever comes our way is good. It reminds me of George Mueller as he, as he lost his wife, as she died in his arms and he got up and he turned to psalm 84 and and he he remembered no good thing does the lord withhold from those whose walk is blameless and he said it is a good thing that the lord has taken my wife because he doesn't withhold a good thing it's a good thing that she is gone it must be because my god is good and he humbly accepted that so if the works that we are to do are centered upon faithful obedience for the glory of God, then our prayers likewise, as we pray in Jesus' name, they are likewise centered upon the glory of God. And we have great assurance in knowing the things that we ask for, we are doing in the name of Jesus. Isn't this a wonderful privilege that we have? As we are praying to the Lord and we're praying in Jesus' name, when we finish our prayers and we, we pray in Jesus' name, that's not like a magical incantation that we're speaking. And if we don't say it, God doesn't hear our prayers. No, it, it's rather just a practical way that we remind ourselves that when we're praying, I'm not praying in the name of Tom Edwards. Tom Edwards doesn't have any right to come before the Lord in prayer. I'm praying everything in Jesus' name. All of my rights are because Christ has cleansed me and he has washed me and he has made me his own. So as I bring my prayers before him, I am praying in Jesus' name. I'm praying in the name that is above every name, the name in which every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. And so we have great assurance that our Father hears these prayers because they are offered in the name of Jesus Christ. They are offered in his name. Name And so, of course, he will hear our prayers. He delights in answering prayers that are asked in Jesus' name. He's a good father. See, everything about the great works that we do 
to the prayers that we pray. It's all because we are in Christ. It's all because of our union with Christ. This is the wonderful flip that we have as those who have turned to Christ. Apart from Christ, the best things that we do are filthy rags. The best things we do are filthy rags before him. But then there's this wonderful flip where in Christ, everything that we do by faith is pleasing to him. It is pleasing to him. Just like any parents know, yes, you may get frustrated when your children do silly things, but there's this undergirding reality that they're your children, and so you are pleased with them. You love them. How much more is the Father pleased with those who are in Christ, who have been cleansed, who have been washed? His pleasure is upon us. So therefore, we hold this with great firmness. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. There is great assurance that we have.